0: Hi, I'm Jim, host of Blues in the Morning. Welcome to Notes from the Underground. A couple of years ago, we interviewed Professor Thomas M. Kitts from St. John's University in New York. Tom is a teacher. He uh, is the editor or co-editor of two academic journals about pop music. He's edited large volumes such as Rutledge's Companion to Humor and Popular Music. He's written two academic biographies of rock musicians. Well, three now. Uh, Dave uh, Ray Davies from the Kinks and John Fogerty from Creedence Clearwater Revival. His new book is just out, and it is a biography of Richard Furry. Can you tell us? Uh, oh, welcome, Tom. I should say oh, that. Oh,
1: thank you, Jim. It's great to be back. I always enjoy our discussions
0: together. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's great to great to hear you. Um, can you tell us something about Richard Furry? Yeah. Um,
1: let me start this way. I in 1970, I was like 14, and there was a. I, I, I live in New York. And there was a, a special concert at Shea Stadium, home of the Mets, that was a fundraiser for politicians who were supporting the peace cause or whatever. And it was a whole bill of people. The headliners were Queen's Clearwater Revival, Steppenwolf, Paul Simon played, Dion Warwick played. It was really Janis Joplin. It was incredible. But one of the first acts on was Poco. And I had never heard of Poco, and all of a sudden I watched this band. And I said, "Wow, these these guys got this place shaking!" Literally, uh, the, the the tears were actually bouncing up and down. And this was in the hot sun at I'm going to say approximately one one p.m., and, and the place was just rocking to these guys. Poco was Richie Fury's band. He came out of the Buffalo Springfield uh, with Neil Young and Stephen Stills. He was the co-founder with those two guys uh, after that band didn't work out for a whole ton of reasons Richie formed Poco one of the first country rock bands so I, fa- I think he's a fascinating guy because he's never got the acknowledgments he should have and Penn State approached me and said if you have any, if I wrote the John Fogarty book, if you have any other books you think you might want to try Let Us know." And I said, the one guy who's very underrated is Richie Fure, and I'd like to give him some recognition and his due. So I wrote this book.
0: I grew up in Winnipeg. I should say, Richard Fure is often understood to be the voice of Neil Young in many of the yeah. early Buffalo Springfield's uh, songs. But it's, uh, they're Neil's songs, but uh, Richie's uh, vocals.
2: Yeah, because they didn't
1: think Neil could sing
0: yeah
1: <laughs> they didn't like his voice he's yeah. not it's not the word I think they use is he's not AM friendly
0: not AM friendly yes
1: not AM a. friendly so if he can't get on the AM radio and have a hit single we gotta have someone else sing these songs and Richie has always been a gifted vocalist yeah and he really found his vocal stride in the Springfield yeah
0: so uh, things like nowadays Clancy can't even sing Flying on the Ground exactly. and Wrong is, is Richie not Neil it's young. Richie. yeah,
1: yeah. But, right uh, exactly yeah. and um yeah, yeah, Richie, Richie sang all those songs uh, for Neil Young, at least on the first album or two. Yeah. And then, then they let Neil sing.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yes, Richie about Clancy. He didn't even know what the song was about.
0: Yeah, well, I'm not and
1: sure I confusing song. Okay. I said, did you have to ask? He says, you know, we don't really do that. We don't really ask each other what the lyrics are about. Yeah. But he said, I just sang them.
0: It gives a great performance. Yeah. Oh, it's a great performance because he really gives yeah. some sense of it's really his song. And uh, yeah. it's, it's 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 very interesting. Um, one of the things I really enjoyed about the book, I'm only about halfway through it, so full disclosure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah,
1: well, I, it's not officially out yet, so yeah. you farther along than
0: most people in the world. One thing I did enjoy and I I, uh, have come to appreciate over the last few years is this link between Greenwich Village folk revival of the early 60s uh, and the uh, evolution of uh, rock and folk rock uh, later. So a lot of the same people Mm -hmm. like John Sebastian, Mamas and Papas, Barry McGuire, and Richard Furry has that um, uh, uh, Greenwich Village connection, right?
1: Yeah, and Stephen Stills. Yeah. I mean, they were all down there in the, in the early '60s. Uh, it was—it was, it was really, that was the epicenter of the, the folk scene. You know, you had Bob Dylan, Peter, Paul, and Mary, all those guys. And they started to sell some records, and they got famous, so they started to move out. And around 60, oh, was it 64, 65, 64, 65, Richie came into the village. And by then, the Dylans were gone and all those guys. But it was still a fairly lively scene. And the important thing was you could play. You could play a lot of dates. Mm -hmm. You know, there were all these clubs, and you could play three or four clubs a night because they really weren't paying you. They were passing the hat, and whatever you got, you know, that was what you made that night. So you go from club to club playing sets. And um, it was there that Richie met Stephen Stills in a band that was put together called the Ogogo Singers. <laughs> and the Ogogo Singers from the Ogogo Club there, yeah. and they got a record con- con- contract with Roulette, the infamous Roulette Records.
2: Right.
1: Uh, pretty much a mob run, and they went down to uh, Texas on a tour. And What's interesting down there is, uh, they really were having a hard time, because they they paid for them to get down there, but they really weren't giving them any financial support on this tour. And they wrote a letter to Roulette, saying, we want to get out of our contract. And Roulette basically called and said, you'll be floating in the East River if you don't finish this tour (laughs) when you get back here. So, So they finished the tour and got back, and uh, they eventually left Roulette Records. But it was there that Stills and Pure met, and both really came to be good friends and admired each other and lived together both uh, in New York City and in uh, Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And you're right, that's where the whole folk rock scene really started with uh, the Love and Spoonful, right. who people tried to imitate. And um, you know, Steven Stills formed a band that tried to imitate them, and Richie said they were terrible. <laughs> this is after your go-go singers he said he heard this band because Stephen might have wanted to invite Richie and he said no way that band was terrible so uh, he went out to LA and uh, with the mamas and papas who also went out to LA and the other folk rock scene and then the country rock scene took off and um, you know it was there that uh, Stills contacted Furey in New York and says come out here I got a band we need one other singer to come out we need you Richie flies out, Stills picks him up. Richie says, who's in the band? Says you. We now have two members, (laughs) so.
0: And and then the famous meeting of Neil Young and Bruce Palmer on the highway or something. And uh,
1: or something. There are a lot of different stories on that.
0: I I realize
1: that. Yeah, you know, you realize with this stuff, don't forget this is before cell phones. Yeah. Computers. So, how did you reach somebody? Yeah. Usually you had an outdated phone number or a friend of a friend's phone number where you just wrote him a letter. Right. So, Neil Young, they got word to Neil Young that we were forming a band, Fure and Stills, come down here. Uh, Stills had met Young. They both met Brett Young before yeah. in Canada and in New York. But, um, he came down and they were there about five days and Young says with Bruce Palmer, you know, we're not gonna find these guys. They were going to all the clubs, but uh, Stills and Furey had no money. They really weren't going out. They were just sitting in the apartment rehearsing. And then all of a sudden, uh, on the street, there's a hearse. And Furey and Stills see it and they flag it down and they end up meeting the exact details very questionable, where they pulled into a parking lot, got out in the street, pulled in front of a liquor store. But the important thing is, they actually did see the hearse, flagged it down. Yeah. They met and formed the band that afternoon. They, they actually started playing a little bit uh, for one another mm-hmm. and uh, and together. Yeah,
0: um, I, I, As you did in your book with Fogarty and uh, Ray Davies, you uh, uh, you're very kind to people and very patient with their development uh, as you tell the story. Uh, if I had been Richie Furey, I wouldn't have been, or I would have been considerably less kind about Neil Young's behavior in Buffalo Springfield. Richie seems very tolerant. Uh, can you explain why?
1: yeah he is very tolerant he's more tolerant of uh, others than they are of him sometimes uh some people would open up and tell me some things about him but richie would really very really rarely speak negatively about anybody he'd say things like well you know it was a long time ago people change people were different you know that kind of thing he would never really he never attacked anybody and with neil young Boy, that guy just drove Stills, him, Palmer, and Dewey Martin insane. Yeah. And and Richie really never, really spoke out. I mean, Young left to Springfield, like I think three times. He, yeah, know. Yeah. he was always in there and out, and he always had to adjust, you know, to going on the stage and Monterey Pop, and you know, just right before that, he practically, you know, a couple weeks before he drops out of the band. That's right. a major gig. He was very tolerant of, of him. And even with the Buffalo Springfield reunion, and I think it was 2011, I mean, they had, they did like 10 or 11 dates, I forget, it's in the book, and they had another 30-something planned, including what I was looking forward to was a, a stint at Radio City Music Hall oh, in New yeah. York, and he backed out, Yeah. and Stills, Stills was really mad and then spoke openly about it, um, Richie said, you know, what are you going to do? It's Neil. Yeah. It's Neil being Neil. Yeah. But, you know, as, as they both point out, the whole, the whole crew, he had 30-something people hired for this these 30 yeah. dates. And they, he just dropped out because, as he said, I didn't want to play those old songs.
0: Yeah.
1: So he but, called a band, you know, he went out on the road again and played those old songs
0: with another band. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, I was going to ask yeah. you about it later on, but uh, since it's gone this way, uh, didn't Steven still say something about... Um, Neil's never played team sports in his life and it sort of yeah, shows? You know,
1: that's what he said. He said that. I'm not sure how accurate that is, but it's he said true. he's never been a team player. He's yeah. not used to it. Yeah. And he's, he's not used to cooperating in a group. Yeah. And so, yeah, exactly. He yeah. said he, was, he never
0: played team sports growing up, so he doesn't know what it is. Yeah. And Richie was a baseball player, wasn't he, as a young kid? Oh, yeah. Richie yeah. played baseball, basketball, yeah. yeah.
1: And he, he really is a team player, Richie. Yeah. I mean, he he really does work with his band. He's he's, you know, he did have one band that he had to let go. Uh, or they kind of agreed, I guess, not very happily, I think, to depart ways. But you know, for the most part, he's a team player he cares about the people in his bands going right back to Buffalo Springfield on through Poco even Souther Hillman Fury he tried to be a really you know a family kind of guy in that band tried to make sure everybody get along and J.D. Souther this cantankerous young man was no part of this This was, was this guy all this friendly stuff you know
0: I like the way you do this in in, in your writing you uh, are talking about a person uh, an event but you also in a sense provide uh, an understanding of of the music industry in the 1960s uh, not in a forceful kind of preachy way that people do but in sort of Tom style Uh, I I think particularly in this case of uh, Clive Davis uh, the record uh, guy uh, uh, your reader gets to ask themselves after they read that section with Poco uh, who really does control the music in the music industry
1: boy that, that's a tough one you know because um, you're right I mean a lot of it what you're applying is right that the, the label has so much to say Yeah. and especially at that time you really had to have label support oh, for yeah? a hit record and Poco never really had the full support of Clive Davis. Now, here's the thing to remember. There are a lot of bands out there at that time. And, you know, if you got a manager, Dickie Davis, a Poco, who would give Clive Davis a difficult time about things, Clive Davis is not going to tolerate that. He can find another Poco. Yeah. You know? So I don't think he ever promoted them the way they should have been promoted. And that's kind of a shame. Richie tells a story about a good feeling to know, the song. They all thought, this is our hit. Okay? And Richie says, I was in a cab in New York, and I'm going through the AM stations in New York waiting to hear the song. And what do I hear? Take It Easy by the Eagles. That's it. I know. It. We're done. Yeah. I know it. I, they're not going to have two country rock songs at once on AM radio,
0: and the Eagles just usurped. Yeah. Uh, good feeling to know. I'm uh, talking to Tom Kitts, author of uh, Keep On Believing: The Life and Music of Richie Furray. It's published by... the. Pennsylvania State University Press, and it's uh, not out yet, but will be any time. Make a wonderful uh, Christmas present. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. I might as well uh, plug something. Um, Why not? Reading the book as far as I've gotten, I'm beginning to wonder if um, doing things in a positive, uh, cooperative, hopeful, uh, upbeat manner is the best way to survive in rock music
1: i don't know because i will say there's so many things beyond what you do yeah. and how you promote yourself but yeah. there's two things here we talked about the record label they have to support you yeah. uh his solo his solo albums never got support dave geffen was a big fan of richie Furet, yeah and he signed him to a three album deal the problem was after he signed the first album and richie started to record it david geffen left the label Oh, okay. and they didn't know what to do with him, especially a guy who's who's out there telling everybody he's a Christian. Yeah. Because the second factor in all this, is the record label, second one is rock music, you have to be kind of perceived as being hip. You have to be cool. And I'm not sure at that time uh, being Christian was cool. I know there was the whole Jesus movement and some of that. Yeah. But to a lot of people, that's not cool. It's cooler to be, you know, involved in some kind of uh, Indian mysticism right. than it is to be involved in Christ. You know, yeah. there's something, those exotic religions have a hip factor that Christianity did not. Right. And I think that hurt him as well. And there are some good songs on those solo albums. I don't think they're a the high point of his work, but he released, I think, four, he, did, he released four solo albums. Let's see if I got my my years correct here, I think they went from about 77, actually I'm looking now, 76 to 82. Uh, And they're not his his best work, but there are a couple of really good albums there and there are a lot of good songs. One of them should have been hip, one of them should have gotten him more attention than he did, but I just don't think he was perceived of as, uh, as hip. And the other factor at that time, when he was promoting a lot of these solo albums and he did tour and had a good band, people wanted the Apoco or the Springfield.
0: Yeah, right, exactly. Which um, is always frustrating to yeah. these guys. And that, that period, too, was just, it, it just strikes me that, you know, uh, it was like disco and going out exactly. and partying and cocaine and, uh, you know, a different girl in every town kind of uh, period for, for musicians. And Richie Furry <laughs> Rich Fur- was never like that, I don't think. No,
1: no, he had, a, he had a, a, an extramarital affair. Uh, with someone that lasted lasted several months and almost broke up his marriage, but but it didn't. It was able to. It barely survived. It barely survived that affair. But he was never he was never a womanizer. He was never really into drugs. He did you know uh, marijuana, maybe drank drank a little bit, occasional cocaine or something. But it, it was he was never never a druggie. You know, and never a big partyer.
0: Okay, so I did this, this is sort of something I've already thought about, but the the book uh, kind of helps me understand it a bit better and that is like right around the time that um, Poco got together and the country rock thing was starting to grow a bit uh, even you know Crosby Stills and Nash and uh, those kind of softer bands uh, everything seemed to be getting bigger like Led Zeppelin was just louder than anybody and there was prog rock and you know three semis full of equipment going from place to place there were synthesizers. Yeah big-ass right. studio recordings. I wonder if, in yeah. a sense, Poco wasn't some kind of reaction to that. I know, personally, I started listening to, like, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and less right. loud, excessive things. And Poco was not excessive.
1: No, never. They were a very simple band.
0: Yeah.
1: Even I mean, the most excessive thing they did in the studio was probably a song called Sweet Love it where they bring in a couple of extra things or or maybe uh, oh the one about Grant Parsons the Crazy Eyes. Yeah. You know, may they bring in some strings and stuff like that. But they were never excessive. They were Simple, low-key band, their stage show, you know, the stage shows were getting kind of elaborate about that oh, yeah. time. Theirs was always pretty simple, it's the five of us on here, no other supporting musicians, no big light show, no big special effects, let's go out and just play the music. Yeah that's what they were always about. Richie's always been that way. It's always been kind of, kind of simple. His lyrics, I, I, say, I make the point, they come out of like the American plain style. Straight, direct, well-polished, well-crafted. He's a better lyricist than people give him credit for. But um, nothing flashy. You know, even his vocals. He, he doesn't have that, what Jerry Wexler refers to as over Watch any of these shows, American Idol, America's Got Talent. There's always a singer on there that'll oversoul a song and just right. do these pyrotechnics with, you know, hitting the high C and then just playing with it up and down the scale, all with one, two notes, right? And it doesn't really contribute to the song. Richie's an effective vocalist because he
0: keeps it simple. He sticks to the melody, he sticks what's best for the song. No, I was going to say, certainly in Poco, that's, that's the case. You can hear every instrument. You can hear them playing together. It's not like blowing the arse off of uh, anybody that's standing in front of you as loudly as you can.
1: No, not at all. They were not, they would not. That was not who they were. You know, and it wouldn't have worked for them.
0: No, no I remember playing, picking up the pieces of the album when it came out, and my friends just looking at me like, oh, you're not getting this. Uh, no, I, I, I just... I I found Poco very engaging that way
1: the other thing was Richie does tend to be and this goes back to what you were saying before but he tends to be very upbeat and his songs his melodies tend to be upbeat as do many of his lyrics but sometimes they're not so upbeat he's got some songs about about some of the things that happened in Buffalo Springfield that have this upbeat melody but the words really aren't you know really aren't that upbeat at all I'm thinking of the opening track on the on Deliverance, uh, on Deliverance rather that I just can't quite put my name on it. It's about Neil Young, yeah. This is, you know, look in the mirror and what do you see, and that kind of stuff. But yeah. it's an upbeat sounding song, you wouldn't, yeah. you wouldn't quite think that, you know? Yeah. But, uh, you yeah. so and, and at that time, by the way, you used to talk about picking up the pieces of the album, you know, upbeat mu- music wasn't necessarily in. This is the oh, Vietnam no. War going on. Yeah. There were protests all over the place. Uh, Mary Jepsen's airplane is thing. they sing it up against the wall, you know? Right, and then yeah. she comes out with, it's a good morning and I'm feeling fine.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I was personally more comfortable with picking up the pieces than up against the wall mother um, yeah, kind well, of MC5 stuff.
1: right. I can
0: actually I like both. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did like both. Oh, I don't dislike um, about it, but yeah. Again, uh, through your book, I've developed a sense of uh, Richard Richie Furet. I always want to call him Richard. I feel very formal with him. Uh, R- Richie yeah. Ferre as kind of the George Harrison of, of Buffalo Springfield, like a really talented guy with lots to offer, very spiritual in a bandwidth to massive competing egos, and it's it's just difficult to get any airtime. Is that... That, yeah,
1: that's pretty good. That's well put. I think you're right. The only thing I would say is I don't think he was that spiritual back then. You know, he wasn't doing drugs, he wasn't sleeping around, he was never into that. But on the other hand, he was he wanted to be a rock star. Yeah. God did not come into his life till uh, I hate to say see the book, but I think it's around seventy three Or 74, it's around the time of South the Hillman Fury right, okay. with Al Perkins coming right. in the band, and that's when he started right. to get into that. But Buffalo Springfield, there was just no room. No. I mean, had two giant personalities in Stills and Young, two forceful individuals, and guys who were writing good songs. Yeah. The Richie didn't even get a song on until the second album.
0: Oh, that's right. His own song. Yeah he, sang Neil's his own song yeah. yeah,
1: he sang Neil Young's and he sang with stills. He was actually saying more songs in the Springfield than either of those guys. Yeah. No, he didn't get a song on until until the second album. And uh, it's funny, Sad Memory was one of the first songs that uh, that he had on there. And he was just doing He got there. Of course, Richie being Richie was the first one in the studio that day, and they wanted to get his guitar pri- properly mic'd up and all that stuff. And he started playing the song. And Neil Young walks in and says, Hey, that's really good. We got to record that. Yeah. And that's how he finally got a song on. And then he got on a, a child's claim to fame on that album, which is about Neil Young I was say, yeah, Neil Young Neil being Young. a child yeah. who was, you know, maybe he's had too much fame already. He said yeah. and that's the second Springfield album.
0: Well, he's a pretty clever lyricist then, you know, because most people probably wouldn't catch it. But the people who needed to probably did.
1: Yes, although you know it's kind of funny, we don't know what Neil Young thought of it at the time. But during the reunion tour in 2011, Young actually stopped the song in the middle and said to Richie, "Hey, is that song about me?" <laughs> and, and, Rich, and Richie said, "Well, you know, he had the they said, "Well, yeah, it is." Yeah. And Neil said, "I thought so," and then they continued playing. Uh, okay. It. Wow. But you know, by the way, one one last note I should mention, Neil did know the song was about him then because he wrote a song in response to it called I Am a Child.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask yeah. about that. We talked about Buffalo Springfield and Polko. Uh I, I don't want to underplay just how important Richie uh, Furrier was to the whole development of uh, country rock. I think that's where he really
1: deserves more credit than he's ever gotten yeah. there were two guys at the forefront of that at about the same time and I know the birds were there I don't want to discount yeah. the birds but uh, Richie and Graham Parsons were the first ones to form bands that had a steel guitarist right that, that's a country instrument, at least yeah. it used to be. You know, yeah. That's the country instrument. That's the fine country music, that steel guitar. Yeah. And Richie and Graham Parsons, at really just about the same time, I mean, I, they don't even know who's first. It was before they even recorded an album. They had these bands with steel guitarists in it. And that was unheard of in rock music. Oh, yeah. The Birds may have used some on an album, but they you know, brought in a session player. Yeah. These guys were out there playing with steel guitars. And don't estimate Rusty Young as a musician. And Poco and his contributions. Yeah. I mean, he was innovative as hell. I mean,
0: no, I, I he
1: loved he has, him, yeah. But it sounds like an organ sometimes because he he figured out a way to feed it through the Leslie yeah. organ uh, yeah, yeah. amplifier, so it would sound like an organ at times. Yeah. But yeah, that that that's Richie's things and and writing those country songs. I, I think that's his largest contribution to rock music is bringing in country rock and, and experimenting with it throughout his career even on his you know recent solo albums he's still yeah. playing with the form
0: so what ultimately leads richie then to move to the more quiet life more i guess normal life of a preacher rather than a rock star which he seems to be well, well suited to by the way
1: he's good i mean you know I, I went to one of the services my wife and i did and uh, you know Neither one of us are, are, are very religious at all. We're certainly not evangelicals. You know, I was raised a Catholic, I don't practice anymore. My wife was raised Jewish, she doesn't practice anymore. But we were both really impressed with him as a pastor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he his, 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 his works very hard in his sermons. He's, he's, he's kind of retired now but he still does some sermons now that, but he would do you know, these 40 minute sermons that were very gripping you'd have to listen to him uh, of course that comes from being a rock a rock guy on stage and knowing how to get an audience's attention but he really worked very hard in the sermons and I tell you the truth it was the best music I ever heard in the church in my life oh, my <laughs> <laughs> it's worth doing, but, but you know, after the service he went around to everybody that was there and you could see it, he had a very small congregation couple hundred people. Maybe there were a hundred people the other day. We observed him, and he went around to everybody. And you could just feel the love in the room, really. And I'm not a guy who says that kind of stuff lightly, but you could just feel how much they—they just—it was a very
0: reciprocal, appreciative relationship. Yeah. It, was, it was impressive. As I said, I am not completely through the book. So whereabouts is? Does he uh, preach now?
1: Uh, he thinks it's right. It's it's right after Salva Hillman and Let me just tell you when that. Uh, I think that's like chapter ten if you have
0: the book in front of you. Yeah, I do, and I'm just about at chapter ten. <laughs>
1: oh yeah, that's when he talks about Salva Hillman uh that band. Right, it was in that band that he found Christ, and he was really he had had the he's gotten back with his wife. They were going to have another separation because. Richie was obsessed with with being a rock star and making Sal the Hillman Fure work. Uh, that was that was actually '74. That album came out. Okay, the first one. Yeah. But what happened during rehearsals is. Um, this guitarist walks in that I think Chris Hillman hired Al Perkins very right, guitarist right. plays all over the place mm-hmm. you know on everybody's albums and all and he's got a fish on his guitar the symbol of Christ all right, yeah. and Furet says oh no 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 I don't want some Christian in this band he says that's not going to make us rock stars that's going to hurt the band this guy and they convinced him he's a good musician and on and Rich said okay I'll give it a try but you know uh, sure enough Perkins and Furet hit it off he comes over Fury's house for dinner one night. He brings in some tapes. And after dinner, Perkins says, you mind if I play this tape? And Richie's thinking some music, right? He puts it on and it's a sermon. Oh. And Richie listens to it. Perkins says, can I put on another? No, Richie said no. But what happened as they went on the road, they talked more and more about Christ and the Bible. And eventually, Richie got interested. And he converted around that time in 74, I'll say, to Christianity. Always a kind of leader. Richie organized a Bible study group at his home. I did not know what the hell I was doing. He he wouldn't have said hell, but he didn't know what he was doing. And he said, I went to the store and bought some tapes and books on how to do a Bible study group. And one thing led to another. Someone in the group said, we should start our own church. You should be the pastor. Roughly 1980. And he retired sometime in the around 217 from his church there and he uh, kept it
0: going all those years i i i i, I think the transition is fascinating i i'm yeah. off, i've often thought when i've watched preachers i like think they got rock star qualities <laughs> so well
1: yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah to be and that's exactly what richie did right. you know he took a lot of that stuff from the stage and brought it to his uh, to his church and uh, yeah not in a phony artificial way you know right. It's well, just that like you learn. certain you learn how to. You learn how to sell things. You know, it, we do that in the classroom. It, exactly, school, we yeah. learn how to sell things. You know, yeah. whether we're, we're talking about a poem that we want our students to appreciate, we're selling the poem. Yeah. It doesn't mean we're not sincere about it or not being authentic. I mean, this is what we care about, and we know this is how we can get them
0: to care about yeah. it. Another thing in the book I liked it just that has not a lot to do with Richie Furry and more to do with Tom Kitts, is you do a very nice, again, a subtle job of uh, uh, contextualizing um, uh, where Richie Furry is born, how it fits into a, an American mythology uh, of the opening up of Ohio. And I, I had a real sense, I thought, holy mackerel, I remember this from university. And it. And I, I, I like that. I like that about books, um, the, you know, yeah. The rock stars don't fall out of the sky. They're nurtured in certain environments, and that comes out nicely in this book.
1: Uh, I think it's really important to see where someone's from. Yeah. Where they grew up. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of that stuff stays with you, whether you want it to or not. Oh,
0: yeah, I think so, too.
1: You know, and I, and I, I want to get at some of that. Now, it's very difficult to measure. As I said, he's from Yellow Springs. Yellow Springs, and there's a lot of things from Yellow Springs that... Came a part of Richie. and It's yeah. hard to say what the hopefulness does. That come from his parents, the environment. It's it's a very you know liberal community. Yeah. And maybe maybe it comes from that. I you know you know maybe some of it does. We don't know. But I think it's important to see where people are from because I think it stays with them forever and ever. Yeah. And I think you see it in Richie, I think you see it in all of us. I'm from New York City, and most people can tell right away, besides the way I talk, and my wife's from Maryland, and you can, you, you can see the difference sometimes, even thus, like, you know, to me, if it says don't walk, that just means look both ways and be careful before you cross. To my wife, if it says don't walk, she's not
0: crossing. She waits till the light comes on and says you can walk. There's a book in that. What is Tom Kitts doing now that the uh, Keep On Believing is coming out? What's your next project? Well, you
1: know what? I'm not sure, Jim. I'm not sure I want to do another book. Oh. Uh, I, I might. Here's why. You know, it, it, it's when I when I get involved in this, it's like three years of intense labor. Oh yeah. You know? <laughs> and I'm still teaching. I don't want to retire from teaching yet. But it, it's three years of intense labor, and I just right now I feel like I need a break. And what I really want to do is just read. Read some stuff I want to read. Oh well, that's yeah, fair I still enough. Do the, I still do the editing on the journals.
0: Oh right, takes of course, time. yeah.
1: Time, but you know what? A couple times after I had these drafts done, I I, I got you some best-selling books on it. You know, mystery novels, and it was oh, yeah. just so fun to sit down and read for enjoyment without feeling you have to take notes yeah. every second and make sure you say this and put that in the book don't yeah. put that in the book. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's writing a book is labor intensive. Take take a little bit of break. Is uh it would would be nice. So yeah. we'll we'll say, ask me next year. I okay. might still say no. I'm not doing another one. But I might say yeah. It's time to start. And and if there's one guy I'm interested in, it's David Johansson of the New York oh, Dolls. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I. It's never been anything. The, the books on the dolls that are pretty good, but yeah. not on Johansson. And I'm kind of tempted. So next year, I'll know by next year whether I want to do that. Or not if he's accessible, and willing to be interviewed. Uh, I might be willing to do it.
0: I want to thank you for doing this and, and all the work you put into uh, you know the legitimizing of pop music in the academic world I think is really important. Oh thank you I, I appreciate that John. Uh, I'll, I'll encourage everyone to read this book because it's very I mean it's an academic biography but it's it's very um, accessible um, there's almost a feel to the book like there is to Richard Furry's music. Oh, that's nice. Uh, kind that's of nice. accessible, nice. Uh, I, I, know, I know it's going to be a happier ending than there's sort of parts of it suggest there might be. Yeah,
1: one thing, it's, the book comes out July 25th. There's a pre-order discount of 30%, which I'll send to you. They could take What is July 1st, I think. I'll send it to you if you could post it anywhere. Great. If you can't, that's okay, too.
0: Oh, okay. I'll, I'll look at getting it posted.
1: Okay. Very good.
0: Okay, great, Tom. Talk to you you soon.
1: Much appreciated. Okay, bye-bye.